Well, good morning, you guys. Uh, for those of y'all who may not know me, uh, my name is Trey Corey. I am our Southwood College pastor. And so at 11 o'clock, I lead our college class at our Southwood campus every Sunday. And also, I also oversee all of our college small groups between Anderson and Southwood, so I'm kind of all over the place. But more importantly than what I do, I want to introduce you guys to my family. A lot of you guys know my wife, Marcy. Uh, when I spoke here about a month ago, everyone started asking me for pictures of our baby girl. And so this is Caroline. This was taken a few months ago. And as you can tell, she takes after her mom and her looks, which... Let's all be honest, it's pretty good for her, right? Um, as she's getting older, she's starting to look a little bit more like me, which is bringing fear to my life, but that's okay. Um, but uh, obviously, as you guys can tell, I married out of my league, all right? Uh, Marcy gives uh, hope to the common man that he can find a girl like her, and so uh, we uh, were best friends in college. A lot of y'all may not know our story, but we uh, got to know each other sophomore year. We were great friends, became best of friends, spent a ton of time together, and about halfway through our junior year, the light bulb went off for me. And I thought, man, what if this friendship could become something more? And as some of you guys know our story, I would end up having that fateful conversation with her, asking her if maybe she thought this could become something more than a friendship, and she had the gracious liberty to re-clarify that, no, no, we have a great friendship, and it will always be a friendship. (laughs) In fact, we would have that same conversation over and over again several times. I won't tell you how many times, but let me just tell you guys that I didn't get a first date with her until 14 months from our first conversation. I set her down somewhere at the end of the fall semester of my junior year, and sometime in January of my senior year, I got my first date, all right? We even broke up a few times, but as you guys can tell, after eight years of marriage and now a 10-month-old, I won that battle. (laughs) You wait long enough, and you can break their will, you wait them out, all right? (laughs) Now, before I get some of you guys kind of thinking you need to start stalking girls, please don't do that, all right? I don't want to give you false hope or false confidence. We kind of had some communication issues and the Lord never really changed my heart. And so we kind of walked through college and the Lord finally brought us together. But for Marcy and I, our relationship, our dating life, and eventually what we become marriage started out as anything but love at first sight. All right. Our eyes didn't meet across a crowded room and bing, bang, boom. There was passion and romance, right? We didn't get really started very quick. It took quite a while for us to get trucking. And so for us and for our dating relationship and what would become marriage, we were anything but love at first sight. We're going to be looking this morning at the book of Ruth. If you want to turn to chapter two of the book of Ruth, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, And as you guys turn there, one of the things I found, I'll tell you, Ruth is probably my most favorite book to preach. Our college staff kind of gives me a hard time because if I ever have a chance to preach Ruth, I'm on it. Uh, This is kind of, in a sense for me, my pet book. I just love the book of Ruth. It's a four-chapter book. It's a short story, and it's a captivating and a really fun story to read and a really fun story to preach. We're going to be in just one small part of that story this morning in Ruth chapter 2. And what I found as I've taught this book is women galore know this book. They've done Bible studies on this book. They're already arrived at this book. You men are wondering, Ruth, I know the candy bar baby Ruth, I don't know where the book of Ruth is, and I didn't know that Ruth was even in my Bible, all right? For you gentlemen, Ruth is right after the book of Judges, so if you're still thumbing around or looking at your table of contents, it's okay. Ruth is not a book we often look at or read, and many of the reasons why I think that the women love the book of Ruth is because they think the book of Ruth is all about romance. We're going to find tonight, or this morning, as we come across a man named Boaz, as we look at his life this morning... Boaz and our character Ruth are going to fall in love and they're going to live happily ever after. They're going to have kids and they're going to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, all right? But I want to challenge you guys, especially you women and even you secret men who love a good romantic storyline, all right? I know you're in there. You can come out of the closet this morning. It's okay. You claim that you don't want to go to chick flicks, but you do. You like them. That's all right. 
What I want to challenge you guys to this morning, though, is as we look at Ruth chapter 2. We're going to find two women as they kind of walk through the storyline who are without men. And a man that's wealthy, that's godly, and is a tall drink of water is going to show up on the scene in Ruth chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning. It's going to be the first encounter this man and Ruth will have. And I want to ask and plead with you guys this morning not to move down the romantic storyline just yet. I think Ruth chapter 2 is not at all a story about love at first sight. Ruth and this man Boaz are going to fall in love, but in Ruth chapter 2, romance is not on the table. Romance is not even in the minds of any of the characters yet. All right? This is not going to be a story of love at first sight, but Ruth chapter 2 is going to be a story of grace at first sight. Romance is not going to be on the table, and for those of us who love a good romantic storyline, if we put romance on the table too early, we're going to miss the entire point of Ruth chapter 2. And even more so, if we have romance in our mind, we're going to miss really what I think makes Boaz a superb and unlikely hero. In the manner that he moves through Ruth chapter 2, if we have a picture of romance on the table, we're going to miss the whole point of really what the narrator is trying to show us in Ruth chapter 2 this morning. So if you'll turn there, actually we're going to start off in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read the first couple verses here, the very last verse of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2 to kind of set the stage of our story for us. Ruth chapter 1 verse 22. Their narrator tells us, So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. These couple of verses kind of set the stage for us. And since we're kind of jumping into chapter 2, let me kind of set the stage and remind you what happened in Ruth chapter 1. I think one of the reasons why women love this book is, and this may come across the wrong way, but in the first five verses of of Ruth chapter 1, the first five verses of this entire book, every prominent male figure and character is killed off. (laughs) And so the rest of the book really is about two women. And these two women, as you might imagine, when two women get together, what do these two women typically do? Talk, all right? So the entirety of the book of Ruth is basically two women talking. And then every now and then the narrators can get a little word in because he's writing the story. But for the most part, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, are just going to be having a conversation through the entirety of this book. And for the most part, what we find is the book of Ruth opens in chapter 1 is that Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. Naomi and Elimelech have two sons. Their sons' names are Malon and Kilion. They are not names from Klingon characters in Star Trek, all right? In fact, we find from the Hebrew that their names mean sickness and death. Try being named that, all right? My uh, legal name, my parents named me Huey. That was brutal the first day of elementary school, all right? Uh, I can't tell you how many jokes I had about Huey, all right? That's worse than the Joel Osteen references for me, okay? Huey was brutal, all right? Uh, they're going to be named sickness and death. And what we're going to find is a famine is going to hit the land of Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And there's going to be no bread in the house of bread. And so Elimelech trying to find security for his family is going to take a move that to him seems prudent. And he's going to take his family out of Bethlehem. He's going to take them down to Moab. And they're going to live in a foreign land and a foreign nation because he's looking for security. But his decision and the way it turns out doesn't really work out very well because by the first five verses of this book, Elimelech is going to die and the two sons are going to die. And Naomi is going to be left with two daughters-in-laws. One name is Ruth, one is named Orpah. Orpah is going to bail. And by the end of chapter one, it's Naomi and Ruth and the, uh, the famine has ended and now Ruth and Naomi are heading back to Bethlehem. And as they head back, they head back with no men. And as a result, they're going to head back into a place and on a trip that for the most part would have been extremely dangerous for them. 
Without a man, they had no means to provide. Without a man, they had no means to protect themselves. That day and time was a little different than our day and time, which women can survive on their own. In that day and time, it was almost a death sentence. And so they're going to come into chapter 2, and they're going to come back into the land of Bethlehem. And what we're going to find from the very top of the chapter is they're going to come back home as beggars. Ruth and Naomi have no means to provide for themselves and no means to protect themselves. And so they're going to come back into Bethlehem in the very form and the very activity of a beggar. Look with me in Ruth chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 2 to 7. We're going to find, in a sense, the, uh, the beginnings here for them as they enter Bethlehem. Chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And Naomi said to Ruth, Go, my daughter. Chapter 2, verse 2 really kind of sets the thematic umbrella or the thematic theme that runs through this chapter. And that's a search for favor. That Hebrew word is also translated grace. That chapter 2 is all about two women's search for grace. They're looking for an unmerited kindness. They're looking for a free handout. And they're going to do that as they search and then as they walk into a field and try to find food. Verse 3, And so Ruth departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who, was re- who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. So Boaz shows up on the scene and notices a stranger who's out working in the land. And now she's taking a rest just real briefly. And he asks, Who is this? And what we find is that she's come into this field and she's trying to find some food. And in fact, she's following provision that God had provided for those that were poor and those that were strangers in the land. According to Leviticus 19, we find God was providing and had provided for the poor and for the stranger and the foreigner in the land. Leviticus 19 tells us God commands those who are harvesting land, those who are landowners. And he says, now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. God had provided and God had sovereignly cared for the poor by commanding those who were harvesting and those who own land by not taking and harvesting the actual corners of the fields. So that as someone traveled along roads, typically those roads would be dividing the very fields themselves. And so as they traveled, they would have had provision along the way. They didn't need stop and go 7-Elevens or little uh, convenience stores because they always had food and they had provision as they traveled whether it was a traveler or whether it was the poor. And it wasn't just the corners of the field that God had also said that as you harvest the field itself, if anything falls to the ground, that is going to be God's sovereign provision for the poor. So as someone's grabbing things and they're pulling them from the sheath, if it falls to the ground, they're not to pick it up. That's God sovereignly providing and controlling circumstances so that the poor, if they're not traveling on the edges, but they're traveling through the field, they'll find provision and they'll find food. This is how God had provided for them. But in particular, what you're going to see in chapter 2 as it opens up is that God is sovereignly controlling the circumstances, not just for the poor in general, but he's arranging the circumstances in particular here for Ruth and for Naomi. There's a set of things the narrator tells us that at first glance you may miss it, but it shows you over and over again that God is sovereignly controlling this whole situation. Notice in chapter 1, verse 22, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. God brings them back at the right time. This is a fortunate time, and it seems lucky in some regards, but God was sovereignly providing the timing here. 
And their narrator will introduce us also to the right person God had provided. In fact, the narrator sets us up to anticipate Boaz and he introduces us to him in verse 1 as not just a, a godly man and a wealthy man, but also a man who was of the family. In fact, Ruth won't actually meet Boaz until verse 8. But the narrator introduces you and I to him early so that you and I will begin to anticipate his arrival and their encounter. And the point is that their arrival and their encounter and their meeting was not happen chance at all. But the deal really gets clinched in verse 3. The narrator tells us not just that God brought them back at the right time and brought them back to the right person, but he brought them back to the right place. Look at verse 3. And so Ruth departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. The Hebrew there is literally her chance, chanced upon the field of Boaz. Her luck lucked upon the field of Boaz. And the narrator's point to you and I is this. It was not happen chance. It was not luck at all. God was sovereignly orchestrating and negotiating the circumstances of our lives to bring them here at the right time in the right place and to the right person. They're going to find, Ruth and Naomi are going to find and experience grace, but it's going to be as a result of God's sovereign handiwork. The grace that they're going to find was not in any way by happen chance or by luck or by anything that they could do or bring to the table and manufacture for themselves. They come in as beggars and they find favor and they find grace because God is sovereignly controlling the circumstances of their lives. Really, as this first section opens, you and I really get a picture in many regards of the giver of grace. Ruth in many ways portrays and represents you and I. Ruth comes in as a beggar, has no means to control her life, no means to provide for herself, and no means to protect herself. She's in a plight and in a situation that she cannot control and she cannot get herself out of. In many regards, she is but a picture for you and I of our own spiritual condition. Ephesians chapter 2 will tell us that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. How does Paul depict the human condition from the outset? You and I were born dead. You and I were born into a plight and into a situation that we cannot resolve in and of ourselves. And we come in as beggars looking for a free handout. And in that situation that we cannot resolve in our death, in the situation that we're stuck in, we find according to Ephesians 1 that God has intervened on our behalf and has resolved our mess and has resolved our problem. And notice in Ephesians 1, when Paul began to speak of the very difficult doctrine of election, predestination, and God's sovereignty, notice though, what I want you guys to catch is notice how his sovereignty is always paired and always intricately interwoven with his grace. Notice Ephesians 1, chapter chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, Paul says, In love, God predestined you and I to adoption of the sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood according to the riches of his grace. What's Paul's point? It is God's sovereign handiwork that has brought about an extension of grace. God's sovereignty, his predestination, his election doctrines that are so difficult for you and I to grasp. They are not to be understood apart from his kindness and his grace. They are always paired with those two and you cannot understand the sovereignty of God apart from his grace. Because his grace is always the extension of his sovereignty. It was for Ruth and it is for you and I. And so as you look at Ephesians 1, you look at Ephesians 2, what's the point? What's the picture here? Even as we enter into Ruth chapter 2, the picture is this. You and I are Ruth walking into a field as utter beggars that cannot fix our situation and cannot fix our lives. And yet God has intervened and Ruth will find it in the person of Boaz. But Boaz is just a picture for you and I of what God has done on our behalf. And he gave us far more than just a meal, but he's provided and fixed the very spiritual condition that you and I were born into 
He's taken the penalty of our sins away and by the cross and the blood of Christ that has been resolved once and for all. And for you and I, the only way that that situation is resolved is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way that we can experience and find the grace of God is in the sovereign provision of the death of his son on a cross that wiped clean the debt of our sins. And for you and I, I want to ask you, even as we start out this morning, have you ever experienced the grace of God? Have you ever been invited and been offered and realized that, that a free gift has been offered to you and I of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins? Have you ever responded to that offer? I want to ask you if you haven't, is it because you think that you can merit the, 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 the pleasure of God? Do you think that you can fix your life and you can fix your situation and you can do enough good things to merit the approval of God? Every other religion, world religion will say that, but Christianity and the scriptures come diametrically opposed to that and they say something very different. That you and I cannot fix that situation, yet God has intervened on our behalf and he's invited us to an absolutely free offer of eternal life and an eternal relationship with him. If you're here this morning and you have experienced the grace of God and you have entered into an eternal relationship with Christ, I want to ask you this morning, how have you received the grace of God? Have you received it so long ago now that it is so familiar and you're bored with it? Or even as we sing about it this morning, does it still awe you and does it still captivate you and does it still blow you away? What we're going to see this morning is not just that it's going to be extended to to Ruth, but what you're going to see in the second part of this uh, chapter is that Ruth is going to receive it in the means and the manner that you and I are called to receive it. But I want to ask you this morning, have you ever received a gift and not known what to do with it? I think for many of us, we have a hard time knowing how to respond and receive the grace of God because we don't completely understand why we've received it. I know one time when we were getting married, one of the, the weirdest engagement gifts we ever gotten, or mar- weird marriage gifts, was two hand-carved wooden Indians. <laughs> they were matching. One was male, one was female, and they were about this big. And I remember thinking, what in the world am I to do with these guys? <laughs> Not only that, but why in the world would anyone think to give these to me? It was just strange. I also remember the first uh, Christmas as I was a married guy. Uh, we celebrated Christmas with Marcy and her, and her parents and her family, and uh, as we were opening gifts, I, I realized that the first few gifts I received were all shirts and all clothes. And so I was thinkable and blown away. I was like, oh, great, some new clothes. But by the eighth and ninth gift that I opened, in the midst of the diversity of the Christmas list I had provided, I was getting all clothes. And then it continued on when I celebrated Christmas with my own parents. I got all clothes. I got, I think, in total that first Christmas, 15 different shirts. All right. When I went into marriage, I had 15 shirts. <laughs> And it began to suddenly dawn on me that maybe there was a conspiracy going on that was meant to refashion and renovate my entire wardrobe, right? And those 15 shirts weren't to supplement the original 15. They were to replace the original 15, right? For some of us, though, we don't know how to receive the grace of God because we don't understand why it's been given. It's been given because you and I cannot fix our situation. And apart from it, you and I will never find forgiveness of sins and the approval of God and a relationship with God, and a fixing of our life. And what we're going to see this morning is not only, not, not only why it's been given, but we're going to see how you and I are to receive it. Notice in verses 8 and 9, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Boaz is about to extend grace to Ruth. But let me drive home the nail one more time for those of you all who want romance here. I've seen a lot of pickup lines doing college ministry, all right? I've even seen them at church. I've never seen this one, all right? Listen carefully, my daughter, all right? First of all, the command to listen carefully is always tricky, all right? Second of all, referring to a girl that you're interested in as my daughter, also tricky, all right? Uh, Second of all, you girls may appreciate this. Notice the first time they encounter each other, what's been happening for Ruth all day long? She's been working in a field. 
I can guarantee you she looks horrific, all right? Her hair is a train wreck. Dirt is all over her face. She looks stinky. She probably smells horrific as well. She does not look her best. She is not all dolled up, all right? The first encounter they're going to have here in verses 8 and 9 is not a pickup line, and it is not at all anything about romance that's going on. And again, if we continue to look for romance, I think we're going to miss really what Boaz is doing here. Look at what he does. He says, listen carefully, my daughter. He says, do not go on to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. And so Boaz encounters her and immediately at first sight extends her grace and extends her favor and extends her a free handout. He gives to her what she could not merit. And he gives to her what she could not return or pay back in any way, shape or form. It's a free handout. It comes at no cost to her. In many regards, what you're going to see is, not, is that Boaz will basically follow through on what Leviticus had commanded. Uh, Leviticus had said, I want you to uh, give the corners of the field. And even more, he's going to follow right through. He lets her eat, he lets her drink. And then he provides not just for her provision, but he also provides for her protection. Boaz follows through on what he's commanded to do. And he sends favor to the poor, to the neglected, and the stranger. But what's really fascinating here is how Ruth receives it. Notice she has a correct understanding of her helplessness, and in light of that, she responds appropriately to grace. Verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, though you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Notice her initial response. She hits the deck. Again, if this is a romantic pickup line, this is awfully a strange response for a girl who just got asked out, right? I've seen a lot of weird responses. I even had a college roommate one time who asked a girl out in this very foyer, and she put her hands on her head and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> kind of strange, right? All right. Uh, I think this is even stranger. This is nothing about romance. All right. Uh, she hits the deck. She bows down and she's just floored physically. Her posture is one of utter humility. But then notice her words. She says, I found favor. I found grace in your sight, though you would take notice of me since I am a foreigner. So this is kind of the second Hebrew wordplay here. She says, literally, you've noticed the unnoticeable. You've seen the invisible. Her own sense of who she is is one of utter humility. She realizes that she receives the grace here of Boaz. She has nothing to offer back. And she has nothing that gives her a sense of entitlement. She comes with empty hands and she receives gladly and receives with humility. Look at verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Notice her, her own sense of her own identity is one of utter humility. In that day and time, women had different classes and different identities. The highest identity that she could have had was that of a wife. Hebrew word was isha. She says, I'm not even an isha. I'm not even a wife. The second level she could have aspired to is that of a concubine, an amma. But she doesn't even go there. She goes to the very lowest of all female identities that she could have had. And she goes, I'm not even worthy to be that. That as she receives the grace of Boaz here, she comes with utter brokenness and utter humility, uh, with nothing in her hands and no rights. And for you and I, as we receive the grace of God and as we experience it, we come utterly broken as beggars with hands that are open because you and I have nothing to merit that which God has provided. In fact, uh, Ruth is going to have not just humility here, but she's also going to have faith. And Boaz is going to recognize that. Look in verses 11 and 12. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. 
In chapter 1, it was about a family's search for security. And what Boaz is recognizing here as, uh, as Ruth has left her family and as she's left her homeland is that she's seeking refuge not in her country, not in her family, but in God himself. And Boaz recognizes not that she just approaches and comes with humility, but she comes with faith. Trusting not in a man to provide her, her provision and her protection, but ultimately trusting in God himself to provide those things. You and I experience the grace of God because it is the sovereign handiwork of God. And you and I receive it in humility and in faith. In fact, that's exactly what Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, a, a section that you and I, have, most of us, have all memorized. He writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want to ask you, for those of us who have received the grace of God, what is our response to it? Because sometimes our response to it often reveals the reason we believe we received it. If we understand that we received it as utterly broken people who have come and approached God humbly and in faith, knowing that we have nothing to offer, but he offers us everything, then there's no place for us to boast who have experienced it and tasted of it. And for some of us here who are here who have not yet experienced it, let me challenge us, especially as Americans who have such a, a view of self-sufficiency and the sense of making ourselves who we are, Ultimately, with God, we bring nothing to the table. We are not self-made men. We sang this morning of a restoration that's happening in our lives, and it's a restoration that is all the handiwork of God in our lives. In fact, James will say in James chapter 4, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That ultimately, you and I approach and receive and experience grace because we approach it with humility and faith. The reason why I brought us at Ruth chapter 2 this morning, the reason why I think Boaz is such an unlikely uh, hero for you and I is because we get a picture of how he not just gives grace, but ultimately how he goes way and above and beyond what he's required to do. Notice he's already allowed her to eat and to drink, and he's already provided her protection, but notice what he does next in verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the evening, uh, gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epaph of barley. Boaz here is going to go above and beyond what he was called and required to do. He was required to leave the edges unharvested and to leave whatever was on the ground untouched. But he goes one and above and beyond that by, by allowing her not just to uh, enjoy a, a fancy meal with them, but also to actually walk in and he's going to have the workers make it all the easier for her. He's going to allow her to pull from the sheaves themselves in the middle of the field and also he's going to have his workers put the, uh, the, the grain and the, and the barley actually on the ground so that she can just pick it up real easy. And then he's going to have them not insult her and condescend to her. He goes way and above and beyond what he's required to do. And as chapter 2 ends, we find not only does he provide for her short-term needs, she's going to walk home with 30 pounds of barley, which would have been for her immediate and her short-term needs. And then he's going to allow her to work in the field all the way through the rest of the harvest for barley and for wheat. So he's going to provide for her immediate, her short-term, and even her long-term needs. And he's going to go way and above and beyond what is required to do. Boaz stands out to me as, as a man who not only understands the grace of God and has not only experienced it, but he's one who's become a dispenser of it. That as he moves in the context of relationships and he moves in the context of his actions, he's one who's giving to others that which he's required to do, but he's going way and above and beyond that. And I think there's a couple of reasons why you and I fall so far short of his own example. At least for me, I know one of my tendencies is to be a little bit of a hoarder. I'm an only child, all right? And so my, often my instinctual tendency is to keep things for myself. 
And to give you a little picture of how God changed me through college, one of the things that happened all the way through college was every time my birthday came around, my parents would come in and they would take us out to dinner. I'd always arrange it so that I showed up and met my roommates and my parents at the restaurant. My parents would take us to a nice restaurant, they'd pay for a nice meal, and then we'd all leave and I'd wait uh, for my roommates to leave the parking lot. And then my mom and my parents would, we would have a little ritual that would occur. As soon as everybody left, we transferred my birthday cake that was my special favorite birthday cake that my mom took eight hours to make. We would transfer it from her trunk to my trunk without my roommates knowing. <laughs> oh, it gets better. And then I would drive home and I'd wait till either my roommates were asleep or not there and I would transfer my cake from my trunk, not to the kitchen counter, kitchen pantry, kitchen table, to my bedroom closet <laughs> where I had premeditated and kept a stack of paper plates and plastic forks in there. <laughs> Because for the next three days, I was going to cut my cake in my bedroom closet and consume it in my bedroom without my roommates ever knowing. I did this the entirety of my freshman year, my sophomore year, and then at some point in my junior year when I had become so accustomed to this ritual and tradition, I wasn't thinking I was on default and I emerged out of my bedroom and into the living room with birthday cake. My roommates, as I sat down as they were watching TV, got distracted by the cake that just came out of the bedroom. And as you can imagine, a set of questions began to emerge. One, why, are, why was the cake in the bedroom? <laughs> Two, why hadn't I shared it with them? And three, because they knew me so well, how long had I been doing this, right? <laughs> and it began, obviously, as an only child in college, I had some growing to do. Growing that my roommates now will often say that my wife owes them a thank you note because they tilled the soil when it was hard, all right? <laughs> they shaped me and they grew me to be a giver, all right? But my instinctual tendency, a lot like yours may be, that either I will want to hoard the blessings of God or I will want to do only what I just have to do. Let me do what I'm just minimally required to do, whether it's exercise or reading or Bible, whatever. Whatever it is that God has called me to do, let me do just the minimal that I have to do or let me hoard the blessings of God. As if he who's extended his his hand and has blessed me doesn't have more than enough to come back behind with whatever I would give away. And so here we see Boaz gives away more than enough of what he's received. And he goes so far and above and beyond what God has called him to do. What I want to challenge us to this morning is that not only that you would be a receiver of grace if you've never experienced it. But if you have received it, that you'd be freshly awed by it. And my hope is that you would be so transformed by it. That it would begin to move and to change the course of your relationships and the course of your actions. So that you're not a hoarder and you're not a minimalist. That you would begin to just waste the blessings of God and giving them away free of charge. Ultimately, I think if what it would look like if our marriages and our families and our roommates and our classmates and all of our different relationships, how radically different would they look if all of a sudden we began to move in the context of them giving away what we weren't required to give and giving it away at no cost, expecting nothing in return? How different would our marriages look? How different would our families look? How different would our workplaces look? And I think it's a huge picture ultimately of what Christ has done on our behalf, going way and above and beyond what he had to do. And yet we were in such a mess that he had to go that far and he had to die on our behalf to fix it for us. And he's done it absolutely free of charge for you and I. Ultimately, we want to give you guys this morning a picture of a family who is not just proclaiming the message of grace, but is living it out in a way that's so far above and beyond the minimal requirement. And you're going to get a picture of how they're living and what they're doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just that you have to do it the way that they're doing it. But I hope in my prayers that they'll stretch you guys and they'll challenge you guys as you get a picture and a chance to hear afresh how the Lord is using them. What a privilege it is to conclude that message with this opportunity. 
I'm so grateful to Trey for, uh, we had the interview scheduled this morning, but it just flows so beautifully out of what we've been hearing uh, from the life of Boaz. So I want to invite you to come and, and join me up here. Y'all have been uh, a part of Grace um, Bible Church for many years. Uh, tell us a little bit about your involvement before going on the field, and then tell us where you are now. Sure. Um, I, first of all, I grew up, well, some say I haven't grown up, but I spent my formative years here in Bryan College Station. Went to high school here, went to elementary school here, went to A&M where I met my beautiful wife, and it was at A&M that we really got involved in Grace. We were both involved in Youth Impact. At that time, it was called Mission. Um, and that was a, a great experience for us to be able to reach out and to experience life different than we ever had. After that, graduated, we got married, and you know, someone challenged me. I got my degree in accounting, and I'd always had an entrepreneurial bent, and someone challenged me, you should take whatever skills you have and use them in whatever arena you can and maximize that because God wants you to show his grace in, in however you end up end up living out your life. What that meant for me, um, practically for our first several years of marriage, or what that meant for us, practically for our first several years of marriage, I was the uh, director of finance at the Brazos Valley Council of Governments, and then we also uh, owned and operated a small business here. We sold that, and that's when we actually ended up moving over, moving overseas. And so where is that? Well, if you were to open up most study Bibles, you see a place called Asia Minor, and that is actually the place that we're living in. It's a, it's a Muslim country, and um, a lot, a lot of history there. Um, we find things, I mean, something there that's 200 years old is really brand new. It's just a baby. So I joke with my friends from Asia Minor that, you know, we're, we're really babies over here in America because we have, you know, two, 300 years worth of history. So, yeah, we're, we're there. And, um, yeah, getting to experience in a, in a fresh way, having... Getting to have an impact on, in a place that, that God is working. God is, God is about um, showing his grace to the entire world. So what's going on culturally in Asia Minor, and, and what do you guys do there? What's your, what's your well, the, the place where we live, the economy is quite good. And so in many ways, I get the privilege of getting to be a businessman. People around us, because we are Westerners and because we are known as Christians, we are very distrusted. Um, the, the general thought is that we're there to subvert society. And um, because of that, we're being watched very carefully, not so much by the government, but by our, by our neighbors. And they get to see how and I interact, and more often than not, that's a, it's a, well, it's always a good interaction. It's not, I, w- I just want to say that we, it's not like we never fight or anything like that. But um, yeah, get, they get to see grace in action in, in our lives and in the lives as our kids, as our kids interact with us as well. So in, in many ways, it's living life. We, what we are doing there is just living life much like we would live here, causing our coworkers to say, wait, okay, everything I've heard about this Christian stuff, about these people wanting to subvert, that's not true. Um, we, you know, we've heard things like that, and that's just a real encouragement because people really are getting to see, getting to see Jesus at work in us. i put you on the spot. This wasn't on the script, but what, what, uh, what are some, maybe some, any examples of ways that that, that has really happened? You know, doing life a certain way or responding in a certain way that you've seen you want me to take it um, yeah um well i i think of i think of i hope this is appropriate to share in in our um in in the society in which we live it is quite common for um husbands to be unfaithful to their wives and um actually one of our teammates was asked do you really trust your husband that he's not being unfaithful and she was able to say unabashedly yes and i can tell you among guys 
that, um, you know, I get asked all the time, okay, so you, so you really love your wife and she really respects you? I see that. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, a surface level of that in any time you see an interaction, but to be able to really talk one-on-one, I mean, I would say in relationships is where we have seen that the most, um, in, in people observing our relationship in particular. Tell us about the family, and you moved recently, some of that uh, yeah. family. Last year we moved to a new city in the capital because there's an international school there. They were feeling the need of um, other friends that spoke English as their first language, and now in the city where we are, they can play team sports like basketball and soccer and do Boy Scouts, and they can go to school with other kids that speak English as their first language. The new city, what, what are some of the opportunities that you see in, in this place? What, what's, what's it like? Well, it's the capital, and so it's a bigger city. Well, and because of that, there's a lot of English spoken. And we have seen, in fact, I'll put the plug in now for the potluck. We'll tell some personal stories about this. But um, we've seen real opportunities because English is the language of international trade. And because of that, it, one, opens the opportunity, opens the door for business, and it also opens the door for a lot of really neat relationships because people really want to know conversational English. And they oftentimes will ask us about that. And we've chosen to say yes. And in the process of developing those relationships, we get to talk about things that are important to us. And that wouldn't be grace and Jesus and, and our family. So that's yeah. it. How can we pray for you? You want to share? Well, our four-year-old had his tonsils out on Thursday. You can play, pray for his recovery. We leave in 10 days. So um, we're looking for a new apartment when we come back, not by our choice, by our landlord's choice. So just that we'll find an apartment quickly and that God would provide what we need for that and for the new business ventures he's hoping to expand this year. It is always hard for us as a family. We, We are from Texas. We love being here. And it's always hard for us to say goodbye. And that's especially, I mean, it's true of Heather and I, but it's especially true for our boys. So if you could be praying for them on that. We're going to have a chance for those of you guys who can make it to the potluck lunch. Um, come, please, at 1230 to the uh, fireside room back here. If you didn't bring any food, that's okay. We'll pray for the loaves and the fishes. And just come on and join us. You'd love to hear, you'd love to hear more from this family. And, but tell us, for those who can't make it, just uh, if there are some who are interested in being more involved with you in the ministry? What are some ways they could do that? I know you'll be in the foyer here for a minute to meet folks as well. Sure. We, have, we do have a sign-up. We send out um, monthly prayer updates for people who want to pray, and I want to say thank you just publicly to this church for standing so strongly behind us in prayer. There have been some neat, even some of the, our visa issue has been taken care of. You'll notice in the bulletin we ask you to pray, and hey, thanks to everybody who's been praying for that. Um, we also have a lot of financial needs, um, and if folks who want to do that, there are some cards over there on our, on our table, and um, yeah, stand behind us. And then we and other, other folks on the field always need encouragement, so please feel free um, just to drop a line, you know, to come up. I can't tell you how much it means to hear, you know, someone come up and say, um, appreciate what you're doing, that kind of thing. Yes, thank you. Next summer, we are hoping with this business venture to be able to have people come visit us. So if you're a businessman out there with specific skills and could um, give up a week or 10 days to come visit us and want to see that get put to use, we'd love to have you visit us. Also, college students, we have, we're working on a six to eight week trip um, over in our part of the world. So you can see me or see Pat about either of those opportunities. Yeah, as uh, short-term trip opportunities come available to you here at Grace, uh, Asia Minor will be the key for the trips that would be working with uh, the keywords. Well, I'm going to uh, lead us in prayer as we conclude. Let me invite you all to stand just in support of the family. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are so grateful to uh, have just heard um, this story of this challenge from your word. 
about how amazing, amazing and how uh, lavish uh, is your grace on our behalf and, and how we're to respond to that. And I thank you for uh, the opportunity to share with and hear from a family who has responded um, uh, with generosity uh, and has uh, gone to share that grace with others throughout the world. And it's good to hear what you're doing in their lives and what's before them. Pray for them. We pray for them. We lift them up to you. We pray for, um, pray for the, the whole family as they prepare to return. We just ask you to be uh, strong in them, to uh, encourage them. We pray for great uh, times with friends and family as they prepare to leave. And just a great return to uh, home and, and uh, friends there and, and school and all the exciting opportunities that are before them. We pray for smoothness in the transition to the new apartment that you will just uh, really bless and, and, and make that a home quickly, uh, a wonderful, wonderful place of, of refuge and, and, and uh, a good place for their home life. Um, God, we pray for the opportunities that are ahead in terms of business, in terms of ministry. Pray that you would uh, just grow those opportunities so that um, your grace may abound. Uh, and that they might be able to share it in ways that really touch and change and encourage and enrich lives and draw men and women to know you in ways that build your church there. Uh, pray for their time uh, just interacting with the church family today that you bless that, bless those encounters as well. Thank you for the opportunity to be with them, stand with them, to encourage them. We pray these things too for all the missionary families who are with us right now in this season, uh, going, going back at the end of the summer throughout the world, some who are coming in uh, to spend time of refreshment here uh, God, we, we thank you for the opportunity to serve alongside them. We pray for your blessing upon them, not merely for their sakes, God, but uh, that your name may be great among the nations. That's our desire. This morning as we lift these things up to you in Jesus' name, amen. You, uh, may the Lord bless you as you go. Please join us for the lunch.